Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, a podcast providing the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Hemp. In our first episode, we spoke about the urgent need to protect and restore the ocean and its ecosystems, and how the private sector can get involved. Today, we're diving deeper into the concept of nature-based solutions, what they are, how they work, and how they fit within private sector investments. We are doing so by looking into a tangible on-the-ground project on marine protected areas in the Philippines. I'm extremely delighted to have with me for today's episode IUCN's Mina Epps. Thank you very much. Natalie Roth from the independent advisory company for Climate. You're very welcome. And Angie Breathwaite from the social enterprise Blue Finance. Thank you very much for having me here. So Mina, can we start off with you and can you explain us a little bit more what are nature-based solutions? So nature-based solution is basically a conservation project, but with multiple benefits. So for example, if you want to kind of restore a mangrove ecosystem, you can do that, but also simultaneously ensure that you are addressing the wider environmental or societal challenges. So for example, conserving a mangrove, not only does it have great potential for carbon uh, sequestration, but it's also can protect against uh, coastal floods or storms. And you can also potentially have other streams of revenues, whether it's from kind of cultivating within the mangroves, it could also be tourism aspects. So you're really looking at a wide range of different co-benefits, if you like. Well, picking up on this economic viability, Natalie, Are nature-based solutions interesting for the private sector? Can they actually become, quote-unquote, bankable? Yeah, that's an excellent question as well. I mean, we have been dealing with this quite a bit over the past years. We really have been able to observe over the past years an increasing interest from the private sector in nature-based solutions. These investors have gotten better understanding of what nature-based solutions are and how they can provide extra impacts and how they can help make money and how they can help save money over time. Well, we have seen this in the area of sustainable certified fisheries and sustainable aquaculture, for example. A quite other case, however, are marine protected areas where you have limitations on fishing and aquaculture, but where revenue streams come from other strengths and ecosystem services and can provide a basis for private sector investors to become engaged. We have also seen, and very importantly, that the private sector has really started to understand that integrating nature-based solutions also help us to adapt to climate change. And with that also reduce the future damage costs that will come from climate change, unfortunately. It is really quite simple. Private investors either need to see clear and reliable revenue streams, or they need to see clear cost savings down the road. When that's the case, nature-based solutions can really be bankable. And we should not forget, many nature-based solutions also avoid greenhouse gas emissions or even absorb greenhouse gas emissions from the atmosphere. This in itself can also create revenue streams as a ton of CO2 removed from the atmosphere can be monetized and also contribute to further bankability. We come back to some of this point during the episode, but I wanted to pick up on marine protected areas. 
So over to you, Angie. You work for Blue Finance, who is indeed developing such innovative financing solutions for MPAs. Can you tell us what MPAs, marine protected areas, are and how they are usually funded? So marine protected areas are safe spaces in the ocean. So it's usually coral reefs, seagrass beds and mangroves. So these safe spaces are often designated by governments and they're ruled by a strict set of rules, regulations, policies. So they can range from reserves where basically nothing is allowed. <laughs> you know, you just leave the area and it's natural environment. So no diving, no snorkeling, no fishing, nothing to areas where all the activities are allowed but under very strict regulations. So for example, even if tourism activities are allowed, there's absolutely you know, no touching of coral reefs, et cetera. So these are what marine protected areas are. For the most part, marine protected areas get their money from governments and or grants, usually both of them. And I mean, these sets of financing are not terribly stable, right? Because governments will change every five years. Their priorities are going to change. Often if they have to deal with things like crime and education, that's seen as a lot more important than coral reefs, for example, if you have a limited budget. So most governments will put their money there at the expense of the marine environment. And grants, grant funding, I mean, we all know you, you, you get a grant, you're not sure if you're going to get the other grant. So to really have, you know, a proper management structure, paying your staff, et cetera, over time is not, you know, so comfortably done with grants. And inadequate and unsustainable financing has already been identified as one of the primary inhibitors of effective management for marine protected areas. And marine protected areas encompass a whole toolbox of management measures that have proven to be effective at protecting coral reefs and other marine and coastal ecosystems. So we really need to find a sustainable financing mechanism for marine protected areas. And that's what we've been trying to do. Great. And can you follow up on exactly that point? You are engaged in various MPAs around the world, but specifically a, a project in the Philippines that yourselves and colleagues are working on. Could you explain us a little bit more how you work in the Philippines? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in most of our countries, the managers know what they have to do. They have a skill set to do it, but they don't have the money in order to get it done. And if you're always running behind money, it's hard. So we generate that upfront capital with blended finance, um, combining impact investments and grants. Once we have that money in order to get the MPA to a stage where it needs to be, for example, you know, you need to have the enforcement down pat. You need to have your, your permanent moorings there to demarcate the different areas. You need to have the education of everyone so they understand what we're doing and why. Once we have all of that in place, then the business model runs on three pillars, really. Um, user fees, which all marine parks do, or the majority of marine parks do. They charge you a user fee to come in, just like parks on land. Um, we also look at innovative ecotourism opportunities. So, for example, not just coming in, but maybe have a day with a ranger, for example, pay for this citizen science uh, program that's going to increase your knowledge. So we're looking at innovative products 
that ecotourists will be interested in paying for. And then, you know, that's a very heavy reliance on tourism. And I think if it's one thing COVID taught us <laughs> is that you cannot put all your eggs in that particular basket. And to some extent, it's a catch-22 also, right? Because you don't want to have too many tourists that are then going to have a negative impact on the environment. You want to really limit or curtail the amount of tourists who are coming in. Um, so, of course, we're also looking at carrying capacities. But moving away from tourism, we're also looking at blue carbon. We're looking at, you know, selling those credits on the market. We're looking at restoring and conserving mangroves. So people can actually see the value in existing mangroves rather than cutting and felling them um, for wood. We're also looking at other opportunities. So, for example, with, with fishers looking at microfinance, if they want to, transition into other types of fishing or even out of fishing into tourism. We're looking at small grants that can assist them to do that. And we're looking at other ways that we can coexist with the environment. So for example, using, you know, aquaculture within the mangroves, giving um, the farmers, for example, small crablets and letting them use the mangroves in order to grow those crablets and then sell them. That's an alternative to cutting the mangroves down. So we're looking at those three pillars, especially so that the MPAs will then be able to pay back. And of course, the very important thing in paying back is that you need to have a strong structure um, that is actually going to do all of these things. And that is one of the things that we're really strong on because most MPAs, I know I said that they have a skill set to do ecological interventions, but many MPAs are not really looking at generating money, right? That's that's not what they do. They're there to protect and preserve the environment, not to generate money. And we're trying to have a sort of sea change in the structure of the, the MPA professional staff so that their heads now move towards, we've got to preserve the environment and we also have to generate revenue. So the idea is that once these loans are paid back, then all of that revenue then goes right back into marine conservation. You keep thinking about ways to generate money and you keep plugging all of that right back into the marine park. Natalie, hearing this wonderful, tangible example from Angie, what do you um, see in terms of lessons or how can we apply some of this to the rest of the world? Yeah, so Angie has provided us with a really beautiful example on how to finance MPAs with private sector funding. It is a really relevant showcase, actually, uh, globally, as many countries have committed to significantly increase marine protected areas over the coming decade. But they need, unfortunately, the funds to set up and control the MPAs. The business model upon which Angie's project relies is replicable in many areas of the world as well. However, uh, the success for replication and scaling up such efforts often depend on, on really the local conditions, the technical availabilities locally, the local capacities of the people and the training, the local governance and the communities, and the, also the rules and regulations that are in place locally. And there's also some aspects like cultural elements that we have to be aware of. It really can vary a lot. And that's why I would say, yes, opportunities exist, scalability exists, but the devil is often in the detail in the local situation. 
indeed it is. But to Mina, I wanted to pick up on also the role of national governments. Can you tell us a little bit what you're observing on the national stage vis-a-vis nature-based solutions and how projects, ideas like the one that Angie just described actually fit within the ideas and the sort of the goals of national governments? Well, first of all, I just wanted to comment on um, Angie's point when she said, I think that was beautiful. It's about changing mindset. She talked about changing mindset for conservationists, but also changing mindsets, I think, for the private investor sector, as well as governments. I mean, there's a whole range, a sweep of things that governments, you know, can do both at the national, but also at the subnational level. I mean, you can work, we've seen example from Kenya, basically, you know, conducting blue carbon readiness assessments, basically for full integration of blue carbon or other ocean climate um, action solutions into their nationally determined contributions. Um, so I think that's kind of a very timely example with the, the COP to really see how can you actually make that part of national policy to promote and expand opportunities for nature-based enterprises. It could be also be changing policies to, to facilitate, like it could be everything from seaweed farming or mangrove ecotourism that we've heard example as, as well. So it's really about integrating the use of nature-based solutions and including the implementation of national, um, it could be mangrove management plans into uh, national or country development plans. So really integrated that, some of those kind of key examples of how you can work with nature-based solutions. And can you tell us a bit more about IUCN's global standard for nature-based solution? What is that? What is it for? The IUCN Global Standard for Nature-Based Solution is really a tool that, for example, project developers can use it and apply it to see how they measure up against our criteria for uh, nature-based solutions. So we developed a standard uh, that can be used, which is based on some key criteria. So that could be climate change, uh, mitigation or adaptation, or disaster risk reduction, also looking at the economic viability and human well-being. So it's really like a self-assessment, if you like, so that you can actually apply this and measure it. So it's it's a standard, but at the same time, it's it's really a process. So how do you go about it? How do you involve and engage the key stakeholders? I mean, for example, in coastal communities, it is essential that they are one of the, the key stakeholders in that process. So it's it's really guiding project developers on how to kind of achieve or, or meet the criteria that IUCN has set. Natalie, back to you. You mentioned that nature-based solutions can be interesting for private sector finance. Yet we don't see many workable real projects on the ground. We've heard from Angie, there are some, but how are we doing on the so-called project pipeline? Well, more projects are slowly emerging. We actually see a very big interest from the private sector. For example, natural capital impact funds, climate and biodiversity impact funds, investment funds, private greenhouse gas certificate buyers. Yet we also observe uh, two main obstacles, really. First, there is a lack of more mature more bankable projects that these investors can readily take up into their investment portfolios because developing such projects really need time. They require effort and the right capacities as well as a very good understanding of the local context. It also requires a collaboration of many actors which can be very time-consuming and also costly to organize. So they can be quite complex. We have to be frank about that. 
Another obstacle is that few of the private sector players are willing to take on the real or perceived higher risks that come with these projects. Because revenue streams or expected cost savings might be more difficult to assess or control than in more mainstream projects. But we really observe a positive trend in the terms that governments and other players are stepping up to the game and provide the so-called project development support or seed funding in terms of grants that help project developers pay for additional studies, like, for example, feasibility studies, legal assessments, and kind of expenditures that are needed for projects to get off the ground. We often um, refer to this combination of public donor and philanthropic funding with more commercial types of funding from the private sector as blended finance. I'm sure you have heard this term And we do that in order to incentivize the private sector to get engaged in new investments based on new business models, the nature-based solution business models for the coastal zone and the blue economy. And this blending can be really done at different levels. For example, you can use public donor and philanthropic funds to prepare projects, to reduce project preparation costs. Another key kind of support can come in in the area of environmental and social risk assessment, ESG, risk management, as well as positive impact estimation and monitoring of the climate and biodiversity benefits of the project. A key source of private capital, really, which we want to mobilize, comes from the impact capital market, impact funds, green or blue bonds. These impact investors require clear and transparent documentation of environmental impact. So really projects that want to access this impact investor finance need to lay out the expected and achieved impacts very clearly. However, uh, setting up and maintaining such an impact management system requires resources. This is also an angle where many donors are stepping in and, and can provide support. Other forms of blended finance uh, can become very technical, um, for example, include first loss guarantees or concessional finance. This is really where donors absorb um, some of the first revenue losses of a project so that commercial investors can still make their financial returns that they require. In case of uh, concessional finance, for example, and, and Angie pointed to that as well, donor support can be used to help, for example, on the loans, either to uh, reduce interest rates or provide loans with a longer duration and sometimes even help pay back the loan interest rates. So all these together can ensure that projects become more bankable and therefore also more, more, more financeable. Great. Thank you, Natalie. Mina, so what is IUCN's role in this new blended finance world? Yeah, well, I would say that IUCN has various roles to play in this new emerging space. So we also work um, at the highest level of, of policy and also to ensure that nature-based solutions are included and considered and influencing policy that way. But we also work on the ground with specific projects. And when it comes to blended finance, um, what IUCN has a possibility to do is to get multilateral and bilateral funding sources and basically mix them up with private investments. For example, we have uh, developed a Blue Natural Capital funding facility, and that's really a, a granting mechanism for project developers that can apply for a grant to actually help and also to get technical assistance and to develop a project to make sure that it's, it's bankable and uh, investment ready, if you like. 
in addition to providing technical and financial support to the projects, it's really to make sure that they are mature and that they are ready to be close to deal. And to be able to do that, we have now um, several projects that we have created blueprints. So they're kind of like the, also the lessons learned. So an other project developer can look at these blueprints and see what was the business model used in that particular case. And we know that there's not one fit all model. You know, it all depends on the kind of local conditions as well. But um, we created these blueprints, so feel free to have a look at them. We've also um, developed um, impact report cards because by the end of the day, we need to demonstrate that we are having an impact. So the report cards can then see how they score against the different criteria. So I think the demonstrating impact is really key. Yeah, Angie, coming back to you one more time, if I'm a project developer, I'm listening to this, what kind of advice would you give me? Where do I start? Where do I want to go? <laughs> um, okay, as a project developer, I, I would say open your heart and mind. Because I, I was listening to all of these excellent interventions from Natalie and from Minna, and I'm remembering my initial foray into the finance world as a conservationist. And I'm hearing all the terms that I'm unfamiliar with. I'm, it, it just seems like a totally different world. So I would say we have to open our hearts instead of screaming and running in the other direction. We, we need to sit at the table, understand the language. And this is going from both sides. I'm not just speaking from a conservationist to a financier, but also from the financing side. You also have to take time to understand the conservation world, which is Natalie saying it, it's different. It's different from the regular investment portfolios that you have. So you do have to open your hearts a little bit and try and expand it, you know, as well as your minds to understand. Thank you so much to my wonderful guests this week, Mina Apps, Natalie Roth and Angie Brathwaite. For more information about this project, and other projects we support through the Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility, please have a look into our Knowledge Center on our website, bluenaturalcapital.org. There you can find a suite of blueprints outlining business models and revenue streams for high-impact projects. Please join us again for the next episode as we have three more project developers join and speak about their day-to-day -day successes and challenges. I've been Dorothy Herr. Hope to see you next time.